Welcome to episode 56 of The Crownsman Show. Today we are joined by John Brown. He is the industry business manager at Quaker Houghton. He discusses the importance of continually improving and innovating in order to stay ahead in a changing world and what makes them the global leader in industrial process fluids. But before we get started, let's thank our sponsors. First up, we have Savannah Equipment. Savannah Equipment supplies new and used mining equipment around the world, from placer to underground to ore processing plants. They have gold concentrating tables, trommels, and mineral jigs in stock now to take advantage of the high gold prices. Head on over to SavannahEquipment.com where you will find more equipment every day. Next up, we also have PowerZone Equipment. When you need a specialized team of world-class engineers for your oil and gas pipelines, dewatering, or any fluid handling needs, you want to visit PowerZone.com. In addition to their inventory of rebuilt pumps, motors, engines, they also have an amazing team to design and engineer your systems, no matter the challenge, no matter the location. Get in the zone with PowerZone. Visit them at PowerZone.com. Well, let's get on with episode 56. Here's Jared Downey and John Brown. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Crownsman Show. I am your host, Jared Downey. Joining me today is the industry business manager for mining, John Brown. He is with Quaker Houghton. Hi, John. How are you? Fine. How are you doing, Jared? I'm good. Yeah, it's uh, it's been fun getting ready to do this interview uh, with you and your team. Um, we've got a lot to cover. I, I certainly realized how little I knew about what your company did. Um, at first glance, I thought I did. Um, but uh, so it's been an interesting learning experience. So it's, it's going to be exciting to sort of share that with the audience. Yeah, definitely. Um, let's start with that, that first snapshot, um, John. Quaker Houghton, what 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 is sort of they encompass as a company? Well, from a broad spectrum, um, we're the global leader in, in in industrial processing fluids. So essentially, if it's made of metal and can be rolled, be drawn, cast, any of those um, type of functions, Quaker has a product that can make the process uh, more optimized. Yeah, I, I apologize. I'm going to have to ask some layman, layman questions here because when I initially thought, I was thinking it was more like lubricants and oils and that, but you're, you, you sort of are, but it, it's sort of a specialized version of it. Is that right? Right. So they're all processing fluids. So they're not necessarily the oils. Uh, they can be, but they're not necessarily the oils that go into the machinery like, a, like an engine oil necessarily. But for any of those processes where you're trying to create the steel, create, um, you know, metal shapes, um, cutting it, forming it, any of that. Um, there's different fluids that are used to make that um, process more efficient. Um, so right. in the steel industry, going from molten um, iron or steel to uh, creating that into sheets of metal, it has to go through several different processes to uh, become the finished product that you would see um, in the marketplace. It's, uh, I love these guys. So you're, you're definitely the company that when you see an operation go to a plant, you don't, I, I always say the plants are the things that people don't see, but then there's even operations within the plant that people really don't see. And that's really where you land, right? Yeah, definitely. It's, uh, it, it's really hard to um, pinpoint it because you're used to seeing certain labels on a five gallon um, container or a pint of oil or something like that. And a lot of people will associate um, the names with different oil companies like that, but essentially it's, it's what the, um, the larger companies like a uh, U.S. Steel or whoever it may be, they would use those processing fluids to create their end product to their customers. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to just uh, highlight something because when I was going through, I, I noticed that there was uh, there was a combination, a business combination that happened. Um, I actually don't have the date in front of me, um, but but Quaker. Quaker Chemical, which I think one of them is like a hundred-year-old company, and then Houghton International, um, they they actually combined to make Quaker Houghton. Is that right? Yeah. So we actually just celebrated our, our one-year anniversary um, from the combination. We had announced it uh, some time ago, but um, Quaker Chemical was um, the initial company that I'm from, Legacy Quaker. Mm-hmm. It was founded in 1918, so uh, 102 years old. Um, and last year we acquired, we we merged with uh, Houghton International, which was a 150 year old company, 1865. And uh, both companies had similar product lines, but or similar industries, I should say. But we had different products within um, the, I guess, the process. Um, so we have a total um, product offering from that combination. Really been able to become a stronger company and offer our customers a. A total product offering that's you know unmatched. I saw um, I, I was I was going on YouTube and I saw a video sort of uh, about about the the combination, and one thing it talked about is the R and D side of it, being able to develop you know innovative products within that. Does that I mean a year is actually not very long. So, it, but does that something that gets going pretty quickly when a com- when a com- those two large you know old companies come together? Is that R and D side of it get expedited pretty quick? Yeah, that, that's really um, one of our strongest offerings to our customer base. We're we're very intimate with our customers. We have a lot of people on site at all of these um, different large customers where we can leverage our knowledge and the combination is really accelerated like you said because we have two different knowledge bases that we've been able to utilize um, to really push out quite a bit of r d and, and that's something that as a company we've really invested in um, for the length of the, the company um, so it, it's something that we work with our customers and try to make their process better uh, for any issues that we see yeah, I, um, you know, just just going into some of the products or, or sort of the, the product line. And again, I, you know, I apologize, John, because I, I, I've, <laughs> I understand what what it is, but I, I knew so little about it that as I it was, it was so much of it was new to me. And the, the fire, uh, I'm going to get this right, the fire resistant hydraulic fluid technology. Is that um, is that fairly new, or could you just t- uh, explain it a little bit more of what that's all about? I think there's actually a, uh, I was watching a video of it testing last night, and while you sort of explain it, I'll, I'll get Gaudi to, to bring that up so the audience can see it. But can you just talk a little bit about, about what that is? Yeah, so that, that's one, one of our product lines. It's uh, fire-resistant hydraulic fluids. Um, so normal hydraulic fluids are usually mineral oil-based. Um, they've been around for forever. And uh, they're used in all, all sorts of applications. But uh, our product lines, it's been around since um, you know the mid 1900s. And there's different classifications of um, fire-resistant hydraulic fluids that can be used in different applications. Um, these are typically used in an area where um, a fire is um, common to happen, or if it does happen, it could be a, a catastrophic event. Um, so we have different products that would replace um, just an anti-wear mineral oil-based hydraulic fluid, and you take out the fire risk. 
So when you say replace some minerals, so is this, can, can you just explain that a little bit? I mean, I, I not to get too technical on it, but so it, it's mineral to synthetic, I, I, I'm guessing is the, is the difference, is that right? Um, essentially, um, there, so there's different classifications of it, but you're going from a product that's solely based on mineral oil for lubrication properties and um, every, everything that you get with mineral oil that you put into um, a hydraulic system, you're getting those same benefits by using um, either a man-made technology, uh, there's emulsion technology, there's different um, classifications that you can go into a, a specific operation to replace that. So then if um, you were to have a leak and a fire present, it doesn't propagate back to that source where it's coming from and, and cause a large fire. I was uh, um, I was going through some of the some of the pictures that Ryan sent us, um, and and I wanted to touch on like for example, could you put it into sort of a real world example? Um, you know, maybe an underground mine, you know, steel mill. Um, I saw some pictures from the underground from the underground mining operation. Um, you know, where there's oil and and stuff like that around there. Can you can you could unpack? what how it applies in real world to let's say an underground mine yeah definitely well in any underground mining situation um coal specifically what we're talking about with this case study um having any sort of fire is a potential to have a catastrophe whether that is um igniting coal dust that's in the air or um you know, coal is obviously combustible so starting a major fire um it, it's just something you can't do so most things underground are fireproof, and that's what you're trying to go to. Um, there is still mineral oil products that are used underground. Uh, in the specific case study that Ryan gave, um, there was a um, hydraulic fluid pack um, that it he overheated, um, a hydraulic line burnt through, and there was hydraulic oil that was kind of spraying everywhere. Um, in this specific situation, the customer was using one of our fire resistant hydraulic fluids. So when it sprayed out, um, if it landed on a hot manifold or something like that, it didn't catch fire. So in this situation, it actually prevented a large fire from happening because um, it self extinguished itself. So in a way, you can't really you can't avoid you can't avoid a fire happening ever. That's not but you you or you always are goal to but if it does there there has to be those though that product in place that it doesn't just basically spread essentially right right and there usually you have a a fire suppressant system that's in line with most of these um, types of machinery so if you do have a fire it would try to suppress that but the idea of a fire is an hydraulic fluid is to prevent that fire from happening in the first place so if you can prevent that rather than trying to control it um, you're really one step ahead. The you know I've I, I come from a little bit more on the mining side, so I, I'm more familiar with it. Um, the steel mill is something that I really want to unpack of how that of how that product um, is applicable in the steel mill. Can you sort of give us a setup of of where it's going to be used in the steel mill? Why it's important? Um, I know it's you know there's it's about keeping it away from going back to the source and, and things like that. Can you can you unpack that a bit for us? Well, well in a steel mill, um, you're talking about very very high temperatures where a fire um, it, it happens regularly. Um, mm -hmm. Trying to control that is really what you're trying to do. So anywhere a hydraulic piece of equipment is being operated in a steel mill, 
um, using fire-resistant hydraulic fluids is important. Um, most, most operations have um, transferred away from using just a, a AW6846 type mineral oil product, and they're using these now. But um, there was an example in a, in a Thailand steel mill where they had an electric arc furnace um, that was used to create the, the molten steel. And sparks were flying everywhere. There was mineral oil that had pulled um, close by and it, it caused a large, large fire because it caught on fire. Um, so what Quaker um, Houghton did, we went in and we, we changed the system over to a fire resistant hydraulic fluid and um, you prevent that issue from happening in the future. Right. And I guess you also don't need to change out probably millions and millions of dollars worth of equipment to, as well. Right. 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 And ultimately, that's um, first first off safety for personnel. But after that, um, capital equipment, um, it, you can get into the millions, hundreds of millions of dollars of, of equipment, uh, depending on if you're in a steel mill, if you're on a surface mine, if you're whatever type of application, you really a lot of capital equipment um, at risk by not using it. So uh, one question, you, you mentioned um, a couple, like like that example you just mentioned in Thailand, that they moved away from the mineral. Um, so does that, is, is that something new or have they, I mean, has, I mean, how recently was a company using, uh, are most companies switching to the fire resistant now or, or has it been going on for 50 years? Um, most companies have, uh, they've been using it for a very long period of time, but uh, depending on which market you're in, um, people may use different things. So uh, I think that example was probably from about 10 years ago, but that, that's fairly recent in the last yeah. project. So it, it's, it's very common now that you would, you would see that more common than not. Um, but there still are operations where you, you may not see that just because of the price difference that you may see between a, a regular hydraulic resistant yeah and is that the diff that that is why someone wouldn't is that essentially the only reason or is there some cases where you just have to use mineral base still uh, well typically um, the cost is one factor that people look at everybody looks at cost and their bottom line with it um, but if you compare that with the cost of loss of equipment and um, most of the operations that we see there has been some sort of loss of equipment um, at some point in their life cycle um, so if, if you weigh that or the insurance um, uh, demands that you have uh, for having a, a product that's prone to a fire as opposed to a fire resistant, there can be a, a substantial difference. It's funny, these things that, you know, these little little things that you don't even think about. It's so obviously, yeah, from an insurance perspective on a, on a major mining operation to be able to say, hey, we use this type of product. I mean, that must make, I mean, that's a huge bottom line right there, I would assume. Oh, oh, it's huge. And it's it's something that you want people to be proactive about. If, if they have a large mining operation that uses a hydraulic shovel, I mean, maybe a $10 million piece of equipment, mm. they may not have had a fire in one for five, 10 years, but even every 10 years, that, that's still, um, you know, a large uh, investment that um, they could lose potentially because of that. Not to mention if, if someone operating that equipment were to be injured or worse, um, it, you know, it, it's, it's minuscule in comparison to that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And never mind the shutdown time. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, that's a million dollar of piece it, yeah. of equi equipment that catches on fire. Yeah, exactly. Um, there, so it goes into sort of, it, you've kind of, 
correct me as I try to stumble through the, this, John. Um, you've got the fire-resistant hydraulic fluids. So I've got here, there's sort of four classes and they're essentially labeled as a water-based fluid. Um, is that, can you sort of break those down um, in, in, in sort of a more technical terminology? Well, yeah, and it, it depends how technical you want me to get with it. But um, <laughs> so essentially there's four different classes. Um, they're called HF is the first um, letters with it for hydraulic fluid. And then you have A, B, C, and D. So HFA, HFB, HFC, HFD. An HFA is it's a water-based technology called an emulsion. And uh, these products are referred to as a, a 95-5 fluid, um, meaning 95% water mixed at the customer site with 5% of the product that we would ship. Mm. And today's modern technology, it's more around 98% water that's used on site and 2% of the product. And this is a, a, an oil and water emulsion. So oil and water, obviously they don't like to mix. Um, so we use emulsifiers to hold the oil in place. And then uh, this, this product is, is completely fire resistant because of the amount of water that's actually in the product. And the other additives and the oil that's in it, or some of them can be synthetic without oil, but all of the additives give the desired characteristics, whether it's corrosion, protection, um, bioresistance to fungus and bacteria, um, stability, any, any of the other additives, they do the function. And uh, the water really takes care of the fire resistant uh, portion of it. Uh, these are typically used in lighter duty systems or systems where you can tolerate a large loss of oil. So mm. specifically for the mining industry, um, long wall mining underground, uh, there's hundreds of um, large hydraulic uh, cylinders and hoses that go between. It's, it's a rough environment. There's a lot of leakage with that. So being able to mix it 98% water on site, 2% of fluid, you can really keep those costs down. Where if you had a different type of hydraulic fluid, um, the cost would just be you know, incrementally more. Um, so that would be the first type, HFA fluid. HFB is similar, and it's an invert emulsion. Uh, it's a it's a water and oil uh, type product where you have uh, sixty percent oil and forty percent water. Um, this one is it, it's a little bit harder to keep um, stable, and it, it's an older technology that's starting to go away from the industry now. But mm. essentially, the oil part of the the product that does the um, you know traditional um, hydraulic um, oil um, characteristics, so it, it takes care of that side. Whereas the water, it does the fire resistancy as well. Um, so you still may have a portion of it that catches on fire, but the water will snuff it out. Um, like I said, this type of uh, invert emulsion is kind of getting away from the industry now. Um, but that's that's type B. Um, type C is a water glycol product. So you have uh, water, ethylene glycol, and polyglycol with different additives. Um, and this is typically 40 to 50 percent water. Um, it it has a lower um, cost associated with it as well. So that's why you'd use it in a lot of steel mill applications, molding, metal die casting, um, a, few, a few different operations, but it's limited in um, the operating pressure and the temperature that you can use in an industry. Uh, and then the last one would be the direct cross um, for an anti-wear mineral oil hydraulic product. Um, it's called HFD. And, it can either be a polyolester technology, which uh, that's the side that Quaker um, chemical, it, it really, um, you know, hung its hat on. 
and then the phosphate ester technology, which Houghton International hung its hat on. Mm. And they're both um, direct replacements for um, just a regular AW68 product. Um, that's the one that you can almost plug in place and it's still going to have the same sill compatibility, metal compatibility, um, and functions the same as one of the other products. But I, I think that's the one you alluded to with the video where it oh, does that's not propagate back to the source. Yeah. Yeah. So oh, that's, that's where you could use it in place for those products. Sorry, I just wanted to clarify this. So this HFD, is that a product that has come out of the combination? Or uh, not, not out of the combination, but, um, you know, we had strengths in one area and, and, and Houghton had strengths in another area. So putting them both together um, is a total product offering. Um, I and, see. and you would use one in, in a certain place over another place. Uh, there may be some advantages with temperature. Oh. Um, yeah, so th there's, there's some differences with it, but now having the, the total product portfolio, um, it, it's really given us options for our customers. I was. You made a comment. Um, I think it's when you were referring to the HFA that it uh, used to be ninety five percent, but now it's getting closer to ninety eight percent. Is that because the development has? Does the uh, is it continue? You know, in, in engineers and chemists are continuing to to develop it. Is that where that's from? Yeah, originally it was it was a higher mineral oil based, and um, I, again, not to get too technical with it, but um, it used to have macro emulsions where the emulsion had large um, uh, oil molecules in it, and over time they've become smaller to become a micro emulsion. They're more stable. Um, that that's really the development that's taken place over the past, um, let's say, thirty years, maybe, where um, they've become more stable, and um, it, even moving to the synthetic side, where all additives are dissolved into it rather than held in suspension as an emulsion. Uh, so yeah, it's, it hasn't been from the combination itself, but just over time, uh, that's the way that the market's gone. And um, yeah, lower lower concentration and, and more water being able to use and, and having a less expensive product for all customers. I wanted to just I wanted I wanted we have I want to just discuss the industry served in a, in a moment, but I, I want to jump over to your career for a second, John, because I, I'm I'm interested because you you started you started with Quaker. Um, well, not you know. I mean, you were with another other companies before Quaker, but you started with this with the this comp, Quaker Houghton. You originally were with Quaker. Um, did what was your role? Because I I see were you on the engineering side? I was just trying to understand what that would be um, in sort of those original roles that you played in the company. Well, um, by trade, I, I am an engineer by trade. I, I started with Quaker. I believe it was eight years ago, nine years ago now. Um, in the service and sales portion of it, and a service engineer. So I started um, and actually moved internationally to Australia um, for the first portion of my career and uh, was servicing mining customers in Australia. So that, that took on account management as well as product development and uh, getting exposed to the different industries like steel, automotive, metalworking, and all that. Oh, I see. When you're so you you come out of out of sort of the mining side, but you've um, I mean just to give I mean I think most people watching would have an understanding of it, but I I just want to make sure that we we do cover it because it's important. Is just that that I mean just the amount of industries I I think 
Again, correct me on, on what I get wrong, but I, I think Quaker Houghton is in 25 countries. Um, I mean, I think they're, are they actually operating in those 25 countries? Well, we, yeah, so it, the footprint's definitely um, grown larger um, with the combination. Um, so I believe we operate in 115 countries, have product that actually go oh. customer. We have around, I was a little off. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have, we have around 100, um, so 115 different company countries. We have um, 15,000 customers, 4,000 associates worldwide. I think we have 35 manufacturing plants. So that might be the different countries where we're actually manufacturing product um, probably within 25. Um, so it, it's definitely grown quite a bit, um, but it, it's truly a global company where we, we utilize, um, whether it's raw materials, sales expertise, technical expertise from a global standpoint. Um, so it, it's really, it, it's grown quite a bit in the past 10 years. And, and, and I mean, industry served, obviously there's really, it's any, um, you know, just to rattle them off. I mean, tube and pipe, mining, tunneling. I mean, there's so many that, that you serve. Is there, is there a primary, like it, when it comes to, I, again, some of these questions I'm asked are going to be a little bit off, but it's just these things I don't know. Is, yeah. there, is there a primary, a few primary industries that Quaker Houghton is, I mean, it's sort of that bread and butter of the company? I would say in the steel industry, um, and, and then there's automotive as well. Um, it, it's really so diverse, but I would say the steel industry, and um, we, we held a Quaker, uh, Legacy Quaker held a large portion of the steel industry globally. Mm. Um, Houghton International also held a large portion of the steel industry globally. Uh, different product lines, um, different customer base uh, combined together, we really did um, you know, have a total product offering that we're able to offer all customers. So that would probably be our bread and butter. Um, the auto industry, you know, some of our largest customers are GM, Ford, Fiat Chrysler, you know, large multinational com companies. So it's, um, you know, between those two, that, that makes up a large portion of Quaker. When you go on, because you've actually been on the account management side, and I'm I'm always curious when I see a company that you've got a product um, that is based essentially uh, a chemist design, yeah. and then you're going to a, a company that builds cars. <laughs> yeah, there, there's a gap between those two things, and you're closing that gap. When you sure. when you land on site on a mining operation, automotive, whatever it is. How much education is required to go in, or do they do generally those sizes of companies? I mean, obviously, you talk about a Ford. Do they have someone that specializes in it, or how does that communication even happen? Well, and, and I deal primarily with the mining side, so I'll speak with that. Um, what I find is that depending on your customer base, whether it's in the US, Australia, China, Middle East, um, wherever it is, there's, there's a different knowledge and expectation. There's a different um, uh, level of customer that you're dealing with. And, and certain customers, uh, they want to know just the nuts and bolts basics, um, you know, approvals, um, what can be used, how it can help, bottom line type figures. Whereas other customers, they really want to dive into the chemistry and, and understand and educate and, and learn and, and, and both, both work, both are great. Um, Feel like if you're in the sales and technical sales area you you have to um, tailor what you're saying towards your audience uh, so if they want to be technical and, and and get down to you know the nitty-gritty with every every detail then you know go over that 
and uh, really show your technical knowledge and, and how you can assist. And, and some customers, they just want the basics. Their, um, you know, their primary knowledge is in the operation that they're around, and they want to know how you can assist in their daily, day-to-day um, -day functions that they're doing, and, and what your product can do compared to, you know, what's available in the market. Um, not to put too fine, fine a point on it, but if you go to a mine, let's say it's a, a new mining operation that just, I'm sure you've been to them where they're kind of just about to turn the key on that type of operation. How long would it take from the day that you first start communication before you're integrating your, uh, everything into their system? Is it, is this like a year process? Is it a month? Like on, on a large scale mine? Large scale mine, it's, um, Again, it really depends on what um, area of the world you're in. In certain mm -hmm. countries, this this could take years. Um, you know, developing those relationships. There's a trust factor involved with it, and then you know all the different risk assessments and um, paperwork and everything that you need to go over to meet certain criteria. That could take quite a while. Um, so you may have someone stationed there for a long period of time, whereas others um, they they have a need. Um, they may have a knowledge pre-existing of your company, and uh, you can come in and implement something, you know, much quicker. Uh, but for the large scale, I'd say it, it could take, um, you know, six months to a year, possibly, to get some of these. Whereas some products are they're pretty fast to integrate um, and and show them the data and get them to understand the benefit that you can offer. Something, something we just show. Um... On a, it was a heavy haul show, and they they basically made uh, the pieces for the heavy haul, um, yeah, for moving cranes and things like that. And and one something that stood out to me was that they had to um, they had to get different permits across each state, so it could yeah. be quite complex. In this type of product, are you when you have uh, 25, 25 countries, thirty five manufacturing plants, you know things like that. When you have that set up, is the certification, if it's in Thailand and then you're putting the same product in Australia and then, you know, now you're coming into British Columbia and, you know, all this type yeah. of thing. It, is there, it, are you required to do all this permitting or is there sort of a, a certification body um, that, that sort of allows you to distribute into all these places based on like safety and those types of things? Well, depending on the product, um, yes and no. Uh, so... Most of our the hydraulic fluids that we've been talking about, they're fact factory mutual approved. And so that's a that's a global um, permitting um, type agency. And it's been around for 100 years for, for data in the field. So something like that, it, it carries weight in all countries. Mm -hmm. um, but there are local approvals that you may need to get for Australia specifically, for the U.S. specifically, and, and go through different testing bodies for that. So. Depending on the product, part of the due diligence that we have to do is, is find out what approvals are necessary that we need to speak with to gain those approvals and then, uh, you know, do a cost analysis on that. So it, it can be somewhat cumbersome depending on mm -hmm. uh, which product we're doing because um, it may be the same product and, and same industry, but we may have to get a, a German approval here, an Australian approval here, a U.S. approval there. And, um, that that's where working with a global company, um, a truly global company, comes in handy because we have associates worldwide that can help us um, with this, and we can you know bounce back and forth quite a bit to make sure that we meet all the regulatory um, approvals necessary. I, I I would think that the combination of the two companies also helps with that now as well. 
Yeah, it definitely makes us stronger in that sense. And, and, and we've got a good footprint to cover everything. Yeah, the last question I have, just as we wrap up, um, is, is my last layman question of, of the day, uh, I hope, um, is min, this mineral-based as opposed to, would you, would you, am I saying it right? Would it, would it be water-based as opposed to mineral-based? Is that? So most of the fluids that we talked about, HFA, B, and C, they're all water-based. So the primary okay. um, fire-resistant property with it will be the water that's involved with it. Whereas the HFD products, those are all man-made esters um, in the lab. So it's, it's more of a synthetic in the truer sense and oh, how it um, puts out a fire. So will there be a point where mineral-based will... Be, it, will it continue to be used less and less as the the products on the water-based and the synthetic base get better and better and safer and safer? Or will it always be a part of it in, in your, I mean, specifically in your stream? Well, I think it's always going to be a part of uh, the mix. You're going to have um, different applications that are very leaky or um, just uh, the cost associated with whatever it may be. They're going to probably stick to uh, regular mineral-based product, but you know, in, in certain areas, say underground mine in, in India, all fluids have to be uh, fire-resistant that go into oh. those machines. So that that's one market that's made that decision. Um, any other market globally, if they make that decision, then they would have to convert to the, the fire-resistant type hydraulic fluids. Um, so I, I think um, moving forward, there's going to be a, a larger market with it just because people are going to be moving towards safer alternatives. Um, and not just on the fire side, um, also biodegradability. Um, everyone's trying to be more sustainable and have a lower footprint on the environment. And, and that's the benefit of having, uh, say the HFD type product, it's 80 plus 80% um, biodegradability as opposed to a, a mineral oil that is not biodegradable. So uh, that, that that's interesting. So in India, uh, for mining operations specifically, that's actually a mandate. It's yeah. So I would I would think too when when a, a country does it, if it if it works well, inevitably the other countries uh, start to follow. Right? Is that people tend to follow suit? And um, say in the U.S. underground mining market, um, there's there's quite a bit of material that's already meant to be fire resistant, fireproof, um, whether that's conveyor belts, um, materials that are used underground, uh, those strides have already been taken. And um, I, I see in the future that just going further and further to try to um, create a safer operation and a, a lower environmental impact operation as well. So there's still room to grow. <laughs> still room to grow. I'm hoping. I'm young in my career. <laughs> Good. Um, well, well. Thanks, John, for coming on the show. We really do appreciate it. It's uh, and thanks for getting thanks for getting a little more technical with us. I mean, I you know didn't want to go too deep in it. I mean, I can I can do about a forty minute show just on the technical stuff because I, I I lean towards that stuff. But um, but I, I do appreciate it. It's it's quite interesting. Again, be, uh, getting to see a company that you normally the product from the company that you normally wouldn't even see the product. It's inside a hose somewhere you never even think about it. So it's quite interesting for us. Yeah, it's it, it's an interesting company um, with with different niche markets and, and opportunities. So it, it's it's great to be a part of it and, and see all they have to offer. Well, thank you for coming on the show, show, John. We do appreciate it. I'm going to do a quick sign-off to the audience here. Um, and uh, thank you for coming on. Yes, sir. Thanks for the opportunity.
Thank you, everyone. Um, if if you didn't learn something from that interview, I would say you're already an expert in the field because uh, there was a lot. There's a lot we unpacked. Uh, thank you, John, for coming on. Thank you for watching, everybody. Uh, please subscribe, follow, comment, and suggest guests. We've got. I mean, you should see our lineup for September, <laughs> the remainder of September and October. There's a ton of companies from all different industries coming on, coming on to Crownsman Energy, Mining Now, and of course, the Crownsman Show. So please subscribe. Thank you for watching. Recommend guests. And we will see you on the next episode. Thank you so much for watching. Please remember to subscribe and follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. Also, head on over to crownsman.com forward slash donations, where you can help support the production of the show. Um, there's two options, the five buck monthly subscription option and the support heavy industry one time donation option. Again, crownsman.com forward slash donations. Thank you so much. And we will see you on the next episode.